Hi everyone, Kim Thomas. Welcome to the Curate's Corner, Seven Fridays in Lent, where we're looking at seven events in the last week and life and ministry, the life of Christ, as it led him up to his suffering, his death, and his glorious resurrection. The past four weeks, we've looked at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, and then the Last Supper where Jesus and the disciples gathered in the upper room. And then the agony in the garden where Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, asking God if the cup could pass from him. But not my will, but thine be done, he said. And then last week, we looked at Christ before Pilate. where Pilate arrogantly looked at Christ and said, what is truth? not really wanting to know the answer, and then ultimately uh, declared Christ guilty, even though he didn't think he was guilty. So today, we'll look at Christ as he falls on the way to Calvary. If you've missed any of these episodes, you can go to our YouTube channel and pick those up so that you can uh, catch up or follow along. You can also subscribe to keep up with the next few, and you can also Click on the link in the show notes to get some of the extra resources available. And there are also all sorts of Lent resources for the rest of the family. So today I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through 31, the passage of Christ on the way to Calvary. All right, from the ESV, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, which is Libya today. And there were many Jews in that part of the world, probably um, from one of the times that they were exiled, um, the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian exile. So likely that's why he had been there. It was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. You need to know that in the original, this word mourning and the word lamenting, these were um, actually bewailing a very physical and loud form of grieving. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. And this is an exhortation from Jesus. This is uh, not just a delicate conversation, a very strong word from him. And here, weep also is translated um, wail, bemoan. It's not just a tender tear that slips from the eye and you need a little tissue. He's saying, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? 
in that last uh, verse, what what will they do if the wood is, they do this when the wood is green? What will they do when it's dry? Um, that's referring to um, what if they do this to the innocent? What will the suffering be for actually the guilty? And a couple of observations here. I think that Jesus, when he is telling the daughters of Jerusalem um, not to cry for him, uh, if you look a little deeper, you know that a few chapters back, Jesus wept for Jerusalem. And it's likely that what he's referring to here is the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans will come and crush Jerusalem and the Jews. He himself knows of this. That's why he wept for them so bitterly. Some writers have recorded um, the agonies of this war to be some of the most bitter ever recorded. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that mothers would take the food from their children's mouth and children would take the food before the fathers could get it. He said, there was no pity for age, no regard for rank. Little children and old men, laymen and priests alike, were butchered. War is not new, sadly. Um, and Jesus was warning them of this sad inevitability. It's said that this war was so um, horrific that the Romans would pile up the bodies so high um, at the temple that they would, uh, a goal would be to see how high they could make the piles. Um, it, was, it was a bitter war, and they would try to starve um, the Jews out of Jerusalem. They would block their way to get out to get resources, block their access to water. Um, and this is what Jesus is warning about, that this coming destruction, that's why uh, women will be glad they don't have children, because it would be too sad to watch their children die a death like this. And that's what Jesus is warning of, is this coming destruction. Um, this war, as I read about it, made me think of Mariupol in Ukraine, and that sadly this is not a new thing, and it's not the first time humanity has been so evil. Uh, likely not the last time, but um, Jesus says, uh, don't cry for me. And the reason, he says, um, is because humanity <laughs> will be evil. But don't cry for me because I'm coming. This is what I came for. This was the plan. And I can imagine that it's possible that it made it even harder for him to make this journey up the hill, for them to cry for him or to be sentimental because um, they missed the point. You see, they're crying because this wonderful young man, there would, there would be no more miracles. There would be no more healing. Um, how sad it was that a young innocent man was being put to death. Their tears were misplaced. They didn't understand that this was God's plan to save them. Their tears should have been for their sins, their sins that sent him there, our sins that sent him there. Those would be 
proper tears, weeping and wailing, yes, but not for Christ going to the cross, but weeping and wailing for repentant, for repentance, for our sins that took him there. Their tears were not godly grief arising from a confession. Christ is the Son of God. They were not weeping for that. David in the Psalms, I think, said it appropriately. This would have been a proper mourning, a proper grief. Let me read to us from Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is a proper reason to wail and to moan and to cry. They miss the point. That would have been godly grief and godly tears over our sins. Their weeping brought no comfort to Christ. In fact, probably only frustration. They didn't get it. The atonement was being made, was being accomplished. There's reason to mourn for our sin. Jesus came to take care of our sin, the justification. He was doing that once for all at the cross. But daily, we continue to sin. So I think daily there's an appropriate time and place to mourn over our sin, even now. And maybe that um, would be the takeaway from this, to remember the serious gravity of our sin, the expense of redemption that Christ bore for us. Let me introduce us to our artist today and the painting that tells this story so well. Our artist today is Raphael, who lived in the Renaissance, during the Renaissance from 1483 to 1520. He also died a young man, not at 33, but at 37, in the prime of his talent and his abilities were right at the top of his game. He was born in Urbino, Italy, and eventually he made his way to Rome where he would die. He was a high Renaissance painter, and he, along with two others, two other names that I think you'll recognize, um, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, the three of them uh, changed painting for their century. They were known as the most famous high Renaissance painters ever. And um, uh, Raphael and Michelangelo had a little bit of a friendly rivalry, maybe not even friendly at times. And interestingly, Raphael had um, more uh, of a congenial personality. He was easier to get along with. Uh, he was very good with the women. And um, because of his easy to get along with personality, he um, also got more work and many more commissions than Michelangelo, who could be a little bit cranky and a little bit more difficult to get along with. And it was also said that Raphael's art, he really was a master 
and that his work epitomized um, the Renaissance ideal of harmony and beauty. He, um, his work almost certainly um, was um, familiar with some of the masters of his day. Uh, even They say that even at 17, he was probably considered a master and probably was familiar with um, Andrea Mantegna, who did the Agony in the Garden piece that we looked at a few weeks ago. In 1508, when he moved to work in the Vatican in Rome, he lived out the rest of his life there. And some of his most exquisite work, they say, was done there. And his biggest and most famous commissioned work, his best paying work, uh, was done for Pope Julius. Uh, it was a fresco in the library in the Vatican Palace. And the works in this room are known to be among his best. When we were in Italy, we saw these, and they truly are spectacular. Um, just, uh, there's no words to describe the detail and um, just the life that pops off the wall from these pieces. He mastered a technique that was known as sfumato. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. If you speak Italian, feel free to correct me. S-F-U-M-A-T-O, sfumato. And what this is, is the technique of being able to blend the lines so beautifully that you don't see the harsh lines and it all um, is sort of like a fog, one, uh, one edge to the next. And the way that was done was with layers and layers and layers of glaze. And he was a master at this. Um, he was very popular and very popular not only uh, with his work and with his peers, but as I said, um, his love of the ladies. And that was a contributor to his early death. And it was said though that he was able um, to make a last good confession and to get his affairs in order uh, before he died. Interestingly enough, the last painting that he completed was the Transfiguration. Of Christ. I found that to be rather interesting. So the painting today that we'll look at is Christ falling on the way to Calvary, a beautiful, uh, exquisite piece, an example of high Renaissance art for sure. It was completed over the years of 1515 to 1516. It's oil on panel 125 inches tall by 90 inches wide. It's huge. And interestingly to me, it was um, created originally on panel. And then by this remarkable method, they were able to transfer it from panel to canvas. Um, just a painstaking method whereby they were able to remove most of the layers of the wood from the back and then uh, almost just the paint was transferred to canvas. Remarkable. It was commissioned for the Monastery Santa Maria de los Pasimo in Palermo and dedicated to the grief and agony of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she witnessed the suffering of her son, Jesus. And um, that's what Spasimo, it's um, uh, that agony. Many times they would, uh, they would portray her as fainting. And that's what that means, Spasimo, that she would... Um, pass out from her, 
her agony and her pain and her grief. He did not portray her that way in this painting, but that's what that means. And that was where it was commissioned to go. And there's an interesting story that transporting this painting to Palermo, it uh, was on a ship um, and it went down and instead of the painting going down with it, the painting floated and drifted to the port of Genoa where monks found it and the event was hailed as a miracle. So the painting didn't go down, was rescued and today it eventually made its way, but today there is a copy of it in Santa Maria. The church was never completed. The money was not given, so uh, the church itself wasn't completed. And today um, it's mainly for outdoor events, and the actual painting itself is in the Prado Museum in Madrid, Spain. But the church itself, um, many of the the roofs are open and uh, it's not used as a church, as I said, but the, the copy of it is there and the legend lives on. Um, the painting itself um, is just packed with emotion. It's densely crammed into the foreground, all of this emotion. And then the background, it's similar to that of a stage uh, set like a play would be. Um, way back in the distance, there are small groups of people, and ultimately you see the two crosses on the hill. He utilizes contrast uh, in physicality, the muscularity of the soldiers. He was um, certainly a master at the human form, and he uses this in the soldiers, their, their um, brilliant form, their muscles and their exposed skin, in contrast to the delicate women's hands and their frailty and then their draped costume. That is a huge contrast to the men. And then he even exposes very little of Jesus' skin, which also helps to communicate uh, the vulnerability of Christ at this moment. Um, he communicates the energy of the moment by the multi-directional focus of all the heads. If you take a look and try to find just all the heads in the painting, all the heads of the men and even the horses, um, you'll, your head will get tired going back and forth. There are so many directions that they're all looking and it creates this tension and this sense of urgency and activity. Even the angles of the, spe the spears are going in different angles, the angles of all the arms. There's so much action in the sheer number of hands and heads that gives you this sense of busyness until then your eyes go down to where Jesus is and the interaction with he and um, Mary and there's this immediate calm. And that contrast, I think he has used so beautifully to draw our attention to what his main focus is for the painting. And that is certainly um, Jesus and Mary. I also like the contrast that he's given us. If you look at Simon the Cyrene, look at his face and the expression on his face. He has anger as he looks over at the guard. And I think in some ways, uh, this angry face of Simon is a relief for the viewer. As we look at the suffering of Christ and um, our helplessness, 
Uh, we see Simon as if he's looking at the guard saying, okay, enough, enough. Let me take this and help him. And I think in the entire painting, it's only Simon that can relieve any of the discomfort or the pain that Christ is feeling. And for the viewer, we join Simon in the relief that that is to help Jesus in some way. But the main focus, I think, that Raphael wanted us to have is the gaze between Mary and Jesus. Jesus' mother is um, suffering, is in agony as she sees her son going to the cross. And then his compassion as he looks at her. This is a little bit different than the passage that we read where Jesus was exhorting all of the mourners that were following him. I think this is a different moment where he is having this moment with his mother. And even with all the activity in the painting, along with that, you see this pause. And it's interesting because it's a very horizontal interaction, whereas there are strong diagonals in the painting. In fact, it's the diagonals that draw us in Raphael's uh, composition that draw us to see Jesus' face so clearly. And even though Jesus is in the lower third of this large piece, the diagonals, um, the left and right diagonals draw us that that's the main focus of his composition. But on the horizontal there, we see the gaze between Jesus and Mary. And I wonder if Raphael, whom we've learned is a very affable man who uh, was friendly, was warm, got along with everyone. I wonder if he might have been mirroring at this moment and that he gave Christ the tenderness that he himself would have felt toward his mother. And in that moment, uh, even in his own exhaustion, Jesus has paused as if all of time has stopped in the moment between Mary and Jesus. And he's offering his mother his heart to her as if to say, Mom, it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Well, Mary is something we can relate to in our own helplessness too, I think. Um, we ache to see Christ going to the cross and knowing that there is nothing that we could do for our own salvation. There is nothing that we could do to earn it or or to do it, or to help. And um, she's close enough to touch him. No, she can't, because the gift of mercy and grace, so undeserved, is difficult to watch and difficult to receive. Mary illustrates that for us, I think, and that leads us back to that scripture from Psalm 51, um, that we would weep for our sins uh, to value the gift of mercy and grace, not to weep for Christ, but to weep for the gift that he has given us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. That certainly should be our meditation for this week as we think about Christ falling on his way to Calvary. I'm going to read from Cornelius Plantinga, a beautiful prayer. He was the, he's an author of many, many books, uh, one of my very favorite, not the way it's supposed to be. 
and he's also President Emeritus of Calvin Theological Seminary, and this prayer today certainly goes along with what we've talked about. If you'll bow your heads with me, I'll pray it for us. O God, your people give you hearty thanks for your matchless grace. Rescuer of the shamed, you reach into human pits to lift the fallen. We sink into addiction and you come to heal. We sink into folly and you come to correct. We sink into corruption and you come to sanctify. Refuge of all who suffer, we look for shelter in the shadow of your wings. Rain and hail and wind beat on your wings, but they do not fold. They are spread like Jesus' arms on the cross, spread out to protect all who seek shelter beneath them. O God, wondrous in love for sinners, we give you thanks for your saving grace. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to spend time with you today. I hope to see you next week. Curate's Corner with Kim Thomas is a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. If you find this daily podcast beneficial, leave a review and share it with friends and family. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit thevillagechapel.com. Music for this podcast by Charlie Peacock.